The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. As we remain standing, let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, that your joy would be full in us, we pray. That we might be your obedient people, filled with your spirit, equipped to do the work you've called us to. We pray for your mercy. We pray for your grace, for your guidance, and for your goodness. That you would be honored in this place. Amen. Please be seated. We're in the middle of a five-week series of sermons on Paul's vision for the church called One in Christ. Throughout this series, we've been looking at Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and we've been asking, well, what is the church? What's the purpose of the church? What does it mean to be part of the church? And Paul has answered these questions in a way that makes us sit up and take notice by putting the church at the center of God's plan for creation. In the first half of Ephesians, Paul explains that God's plan for creation is to unite all things in Jesus Christ, every planet, every plant, every person, so that all of creation finds its place in him together. Paul then explains that the church, God's gathered people, us, He explains that we have a vital role to play in this work. Having been reconciled to God and to one another through Jesus' death and resurrection, we have become the living, breathing body of Christ in this world. Our life together bears witness to the glory of God, not just to the world around us, but to the spiritual forces of the heavenly realms. It is in us and through us by the power of his Holy Spirit that God is demonstrating the miracle of his uniting work. That's incredible. But of course, the work isn't complete. As we saw last week, we are still very much under construction. Church can be hard work. It can be messy. It can be a little dangerous. But it is God who is in charge, not us. And he is the one building us up and piecing us together. 
So Paul concludes this first half of the letter at the end of chapter 3 with a prayer that reflects his confidence in God's work. This is what he says. He says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, the, the letter could end there. It's a perfectly cut theological gem sparkling with the light of truth. But it leaves us hungry, hungry for more. How do we do this? What does it look like? Surely there are blueprints for this construction project at the heart of God's plan for creation. And there are. In the second half of Ephesians, Paul gets increasingly practical. Having explained what the church is, he now shows the Ephesians and us how to be the church. This shift from theology into practice, it begins in chapter 4, which is where we find ourselves this morning. And I hope you'll turn there with me now in those red Bibles to page 977 to Ephesians Ephesians chapter 4. In the first 16 verses of chapter 4, Paul covers three major topics, and these are going to form our outline as we make our way through the text. He discusses the gloria of our unity, the gift of our diversity, and then finally the path to maturity. Unity, diversity, and maturity. So we begin with the glory of our unity. In the first section, Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called, the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So Paul gets practical by talking about how we are to treat each other with humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another in love. It's interesting, he's not concerned primarily with our individual lives as followers of Jesus. The first thing on his mind is how we live together. And that's because the shape of the Christian life is congregational. It is who we are and how we are in community that reveals the glory of the risen and ascended Jesus to the world. Paul continues by explaining that he wants us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice that he talks about unity as something that we are given rather than as something that we might achieve. We don't strive, we don't don't have to strive for unity as a community. It is a fact of our existence. And Paul explains how and why that is in verses 4 to 6. We've been united in one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. Seven times he repeats that word one, drilling into our heads this fact that we are one in Christ. As I said last week, we don't come to church on Sundays in order to make new friends. 
We come to church to discover those relationships that God has already given us as part of his plan from before the beginning of time. For this reason, when Paul decides to get practical, his first order of business is to encourage us in those, is to encourage in us those virtues required for living in unity, those qualities we must pursue in order to maintain this miraculous unity that we've been given. I think typically when we think about Christian virtue or when we think about spiritual maturity, we think about individuals and we think about their interior life, right? So pe- people who are faithful in prayer and Bible study, people who are, who are honest and have integrity, whose thoughts are pure. We tend to think of virtue as who you are when no one's looking. By contrast, Paul is most concerned with who we are when the world is watching. Each of the virtues that he encourages here is seen in relationship. So when he says that we are to walk with all humility, he's not saying merely think less of yourself. He's saying treat others as greater than yourself. He's not referring to a gentle spirit when he says gentleness, so much as he is saying, look, don't be harsh or mean to your brothers and sisters in Christ, but treat them gently. In the Roman world, the world that received this letter, humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one one another in love were not virtues. These were not virtues. They were seen as pathetic. So your typical Roman would have read this list as the description of a failed man. Weak, timid, effeminate, easily dominated. Now we, by contrast, we live in a society that's been shaped by the values of Christianity. Humility and patience, etc., they're generally looked upon as positives, at least theoretically. But when you consider the way that we live and the way that our society works, you realize that these are virtues that we prize in other people, not in ourselves or even in our chosen leaders. The virtues and values that Paul demands of us, they're countercultural and they're counterintuitive. Being humble and gentle and patient, it can feel like getting run over. But that's precisely what Jesus did when he went to the cross. And it was precisely through the cross that his power and his strength were on full display. So we show the world the power of Jesus and the beauty of his people when we live together in humility, being gentle, patient, and bearing with each other in love. That's the glory of our unity. We've been united in Christ, and we must learn to live like it. Well, in verse 7, Paul shifts from speaking about oneness to speaking about each one of us. He turns his attention from corporate identity to individual gifting, from unity to the gift of diversity. So let me read this kind of strange sequence of verses to you, starting at verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. 
In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who, has also, who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. As I said, this is kind of, this is kind of strange. The, the key thought is in the opening line, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, Paul, Paul has already talked about gifts and grace in chapter 3, where he described his call to be a minister of the gospel to the Gentiles. He described it as a gift of God's grace. So God gave him an assignment to share the good news of Jesus with the Gentiles, and at the same time, God gave him the ability to do what he had assigned. Paul was called and Paul was gifted. And what he says here in chapter 4 is that God calls and gifts each one of us to serve in our own particular way within the body of Christ. So what, what are we to make of the rather strange quotation from Psalm 68 and the equally strange explanation that follows in verses 9 to 10? Well, we read portions of this psalm earlier in our service, and you can flip back to it if you want. You'll notice that the psalm is about the victory of God over his enemies and the triumphant joy of God's people as he shares the spoils of victory. So the psalm is about the splendor of God's kingdom and his reign over all creation. Now these are themes that Paul has touched on in the first three chapters of Ephesians. The victory of God is the cross of Christ and the empty grave. The triumph of God is his church with whom he shares the spoils of victory and through whom the kingdom of God is breaking into the world. So it seems to me that Paul has actually been thinking about this psalm as he writes the letter and that he sees the reference to an ascended king giving gifts to his people as a foreshadowing of the ministry of the ascended Christ who gives grace to each of us in the form of gifts that are useful for building up his body here on earth. Now, you'll notice that in the rest of our reading uh, in Ephesians, Paul returns to the imagery of the body of Christ and the building up of his people. He likes these metaphors. He mixes them up together. So that at the end of our reading, starting in the middle of verse 15, he says this. He says, we are to grow up in him in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So I have a friend who broke her pinky toe, her pinky toe on her left foot a few years ago. Uh, it healed incorrectly, and it juts out from her other toes at just a slight angle. Now this has affected the way she walks which means that she's putting uneven strain on her hips and her back. And that's led to lower back pain and issues with her posture. All because of one little pinky toe is just askew. Every single one of us, well at least if you're over 40, can tell a similar story about our own bodies. For some of us, this, like, this is what we just talk about all the time with other people of our age and demographic. We know from experience that our bodies are made up of complex, differentiated systems that are nonetheless seamlessly integrated into a single whole. Everything is connected and everything matters. 
So you cannot choose to ignore one part of your body and make up for it elsewhere. You can be strong and fit and eating well, but if you're dehydrated, you're toast. You can be strong, fit, well-fed, and hydrated, but if you can't see, you're going to run into a tree. The body of Christ works in the same way. Each one of us has a purpose, and we all matter as a result. Each of us has been given God's grace, and we've been gifted for the sake of serving the body of Christ of which we are a part. The gift of our diversity is found in the diversity of our gifts, given to us by the risen and reigning Christ for the purpose of building up every member of the body. So we need each other. Without each other, every system eventually fails. So I know some of you are probably thinking to yourselves, that's great, thank you, but how do I know what my gifts and my calling are? How do I know where I fit in the body? I mean, it's good to know if you're the pancreas or if you're a lung. It's an important question, but it's actually not what Paul is concerned about in this passage. So I'm not going to say much, but I do want to say two things. First, I think we probably spend too much time asking the question, where do I fit? When we would be better off asking, what's missing? We are preoccupied by our individual piece of the puzzle rather than the puzzle as a whole and the pieces that are missing. So if you sense, if you sense a weakness or a gap or a need in the life of the body of Christ, then chances are that your gifting is to fill it. Second, we don't discover our gifts and our calling in isolation from other people. So in other words, you're not going to figure this out on your own by taking an online assessment or a personality test or just by thinking really hard about it. You're going to figure this out in conversation with others as they speak to who you are in community. It will be other people who help you name your gifts and find your fit in the body. But for other people to be able to help you, they need to know you. You need to be invested in them. You need to practice being the body so that the body can build you up and show you where you fit. My parents um, are out in the Rocky Mountains right now. And it is the beginning of Aspen season. So it's that time of year when aspen leaves turn golden yellow as if they're releasing pure stored sunlight back into the atmosphere. It's incredible. It's glorious. But I wonder, did you, do you know that you will almost never see a single aspen tree standing alone? Think about this. If you've been out there, you've seen pictures, you never see just one aspen tree. And that's because aspen do not grow on their own. They grow in groves or in stands because they're actually part of a single organism with a shared root system. So they appear to be individual trees 
individual organic entities standing sort of in a sociable cluster. But in reality, each tree is an outgrowth of a single organism that's hidden beneath the rocky, the rocky soil. They're splendid in their beauty and in their diversity, but they are only able to live as a unity. That's us. It's a picture of the body of Christ. So we've got one last section to cover in verses 11 to 16. And here Paul turns his attention from the gift of diversity to the path to maturity. He writes this, verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So Paul's been talking about how each of us has been given a gift for the purpose of building up the body of Christ, the church. And in this context, he now talks specifically about the ministry of church leaders, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherd teachers. All of them share a single goal, which is to equip every member of the body for the work of ministry so that we all reach maturity together. The other night, Alicia was watching an episode of the uh, old TV series, Friday Night Lights. And afterwards, she said she, she rem was remarking that the job of a football coach is a lot like the job of a pastor. And it's true. My job is a lot like a head football coach. Our clergy team, our assistant coaches overseeing different parts of the team, the, ch the church staff, our strength trainers, physical therapists, and equipment managers. This right here, this is our practice facility. And my job each week is to teach you to play the game, to live the Christian life better together when you go out into the world Monday through Friday. So I know that Sunday mornings can sometimes feel like a spectator sport. You watch as those of us in white robes do our thing. But this is not meant to be a spectator sport. This is a training ground. My job is not to put on a good show. My job is to help you learn your position, to teach you how to work with other members of the team, and to take you from fundamentals to full maturity as players. So last week I said you should think about wearing steel-toed boots and hard hats to church. This week I want you to be thinking about wearing gym clothes and running shorts. We can have a really great uh, sartorial assortment here on a Sunday. You should leave here each week feeling as if you got a good spiritual workout. That's how we mature as a team. And again, notice how for Christians maturity, like virtue, is corporate. It's not personal in the sense that an individual can become mature on his or her own. Christian maturity is congregational. It is something that we only attain together as we share life and ministry. So why does it matter for us to grow in maturity? I mean, we're already saved by Christ. We're headed into eternal life with him. What more do we need in the here and now? Well, Paul continues in verse 14, so that we may no longer be children 
tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Maturity matters because we inhabit a world that wants to break us down. We won't survive as Christian people on the competitive playing field of modern Western society if we don't work together, learn our positions, and grow in our knowledge and understanding of the way the world works. If we remain immature, we will be like a group of enthusiastic eight-year-olds sent out to defend the gospel against the starting offensive line of an NFL franchise. But if we learn what's true together, if we study the scriptures, seeking to understand the gospel and its consequences, if we learn how to love one another with humility, gentleness, and patience, building each other up as a unified body, we are going to play with grace and with strength and with power. So what have we said this morning? The glory of our unity is that it has already been established by God in Christ. When we repent of our sin and turn to Jesus, we are reconciled to him and to his people, to each other. The gift of our diversity is that in this one body, we all have a different role to play. We need each other. There are no extraneous members, no unnecessary parts. Finally, the path to maturity is found as we live and work and serve together under the kind of leadership that's rooted in Scripture and that's grounded in love. Let's pray. Lord God, would you give us grace to live out the unity that you have given us? Would you give us the grace to understand and have joy in the diversity of gifts that we share, that we might serve and equip and be built up in you? And Lord, would you set us on the path to maturity, that we might be rooted and grounded in love, that we might be faithful and true to your word? and that we might proclaim your goodness and your glory to the world around us. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.